Thank you for listening to a sermon from the District Church. For more information about us, please visit www.thedistrict.church. Additionally, if any of our sermons have brought encouragement to you, would you please let us know by emailing us at info at thedistrict.church. Well, good morning, church. Hey, there's one out there. Good morning. How are we doing? Awesome. All right. Good deal. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them to Acts chapter 14 is where we're going to be today, this morning. Acts chapter 14, uh, our passage that we're actually going to be covering is verses 19 through 23, but I'm going to back up to verses 12 because I feel like they, they kind of connect in with one another um, as we look at this, even though we, we did cover, Josh covered a little bit of 12 um, through 18 last week in his sermon. Um, which was actually a sermon that I had already kind of prepared for, uh, but because I was sick the week of, we kind of threw it to Josh on the last minute um, for him to preach. And so I'm still going to cover a little bit of that because I feel it ties into to the passage that we're looking at today. Um, but if you're new to the district or have not been with us um, or visiting today, uh, we, we are a church that centers around Jesus Christ. Um, we're all about Jesus. Everything that we how we exist, everything that we do, everything that sustains us in life is all around um, the central person of Jesus Christ, his work, his life, his death, his resurrection. Um, so we want to be all about him. And because we want to be all about him, Sunday mornings from the songs that we sing to the prayers that we pray to the confessions that we confess, um, everything is centered around the word of God because the word of God is what reveals to us the truth about Jesus Christ. Um, it shows us who he is and what he's doing in our lives and how God is orchestrating through his life and his death and his resurrection our identities. And so, just like that song says, who we are in Christ, what he says about us, we find in his word. And so that's why we always want to kind of center and be very biblical when it comes to the preaching of God's word. And so I bring that up because as a church, we go through books of the Bible. We preach verse to verse um, books of the Bible because we want to be instructed by that rather than me or Josh or, or any one of our, our um, teachers to be able to come up and just kind of say, here's some ideas that we have. Um, here's some um, kind of series that we want to go through that we think are good, that are kind of self-help series or, or topical series that we think will impact you, and then we'll kind of try to add on a couple of Bible verses to, to hopefully make them Christian. Um, but at the end of the day, we know that that's not going to really serve you. That's not going to really provide for you what you need to become more like Christ on a daily basis, um, to actually grow in the identity of what God is saying you are in Christ. And so that's why we, we focus so much on Scripture, and we focus so much on what God is teaching us through the Bible that He has provided for us many, many years ago. And so that's just kind of, again, just a, a, a snapshot of, of why we focus on Scripture as much as we do and why we want to jump in and cover it verse to verse. And so uh, over the last year, starting back in February of 2018, got to get my years right, uh, we started in the book of Acts. And so we've been preaching through the book of Acts, and we do that in the spring and fall. We take summertime to kind of take a break, and we'll do like a smaller chunk of passage of Scripture and just focus on that in the summertime. And then in the wintertime, we do an Advent and an Epiphany series to kind of follow the liturgical church calendar. Um, but in kind of February to May, 
um, we jump right back into our overarching theme, which right now is the book of Acts. And so starting in February, we jumped right back into Acts chapter 13, and we'll continue that through May, and then we'll jump back in in August and continue it from August to the end of November, just walking through the book of Acts. Um, so before we jump into this one, I want to pray again um, for God, the Holy Spirit, to just speak to our hearts, speak to our minds today, and just provide for us the spiritual food that we need. Father, we thank you so much for your love. We thank you so much for your word that you have preserved for us. We thank you that your word is living and active. We thank you that your word pierces down to our identities. It begins to separate for us what is flesh. It begins to separate for us what is still an old self that we're holding on to. And it allows us to have awareness of what that old self is so that we can cast it off, so that we can lay it aside, and we can continue to trust the new self, the new identity, the new creation that you have made within us. And so God, as we read your word, my prayer is that the Holy Spirit right now in this place within us would strengthen us, would grow us, would sanctify us from one degree of glory to the next, to become more like Jesus when we leave here from when we first walked into this place. So we love you, Lord, and we are thankful for the work that you are doing within us right now. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so I want to pick it up in verse 12 of Acts chapter 14, so follow along with me. Barnabas, they called Zeus, and Paul, Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. So I wanted to back up to this verse um, because, again, I want to show you a couple of things today. And, and one of the overarching themes that I want you to see today is, is how influential people can be based on um, something around them that happens that will kind of dictate what they believe or what they think and really kind of how easy it is uh, to get people to fall into a false doctrine or to fall into a false belief system or to fall into um, something that's just not true. And so here you have, as Josh covered last week, Paul and Barnabas are, are moving into um, this city called Lystra and, and they're healing um, they're providing some miracles. They're coming in with the power of the Holy Spirit, and they're changing people's lives. And because they changed people's lives so much, the people around them, the crowd, saw these miracles and literally thought, like Zeus, the Greek god, the, the mythical Greek god, Zeus has come, and then Hermes has also come. And so they believed Zeus to be Barnabas, and they believed Paul to be Hermes. And if, you don't, if you're not familiar with Greek mythology... Hermes is also called in the Roman name Mercury. He was the ancient Greek god of trade, wealth, luck, fertility, animal husbandry. Don't want to go there. Sleep, language, thieves, and travel. One of the cleverest and most mischievous of the Olympian gods. He was also their herald and messenger. In our modern culture, Hermes would, would essentially be kind of for a city, the chief consultant to fast-track you to the American dream. Like, he would be the go-to guy who's going to just lay out for you exactly what you need to do in life in order to have the American dream now. 
He's going to provide that for you. And then Barnabas, they refer to as Zeus, the king of the Greek gods who lived on Mount Olympus. He was the god of the sky and thunder. His symbols included the lightning bolt, the eagle, the bull, and the oak tree. In our modern day, Zeus would be essentially at the helm of all political, social, and economic power. He would be the go-to guy that everyone looks to to ultimately grant them success and power in life. This is who they would refer to. And this is who they are looking at Paul and Barnabas as being. As, as literally these guys have come and they hold all authority, all power when it comes to providing for us the success that we are ultimately longing for. They're going to provide us the American dream and they're going to provide us all success and power. How do Paul and Barnabas respond to these acts of worship towards them? I mean, do they just bask in the attention? Do they relish the over-the-top affirmation and support? Do they change their Twitter handles to at Zeus and at Hermes and start retweeting people when they're referring to them in this praise? It says in verse 14, When the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you. And we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In the past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways, yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with good, with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. This crowd is just infatuated by Paul and Barnabas. I mean, they're, they're literally cashing out their 401ks and investing all their money into the company of Paul and Barnabas. They're, turning their, they're, they're literally burning their sports memorabilia, their sports jerseys, whatever teams that they kind of uh, have all their um, allegiance to, and they're jumping on the bandwagon of Paul and Barnabas, Team Hermes and Team Zeus. They're leaving behind all avenues of self-exaltation and now exalting Paul and Barnabas at the highest act of worship, literally offering sacrifices to them, coming in and, and sacrificing animals, bloodshed, in order for Paul and Barnabas to then take that sacrifice and then bless them with a good life. That's what they're hoping to get out of this. They're placing all hope in these two guys. To this crowd, Paul and Barnabas are all-powerful, hold all authority, and deserving of the highest praise imaginable. And how did Paul and Barnabas respond to these? They ran from their raving fans as fast as possible. Men, why, why are you doing these things? We're men just like you of like nature with you. We bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things that you're placing your hope and your trust in and rather turn to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. To Paul and Barnabas, the allure of human approval, acceptance, esteem, and intense admiration seemed more dangerous than it was enticing, more threatening than it was tempting. And they knew... The roots of the crowd's flattering idolatry would eventually kill each and every one of them. 
They knew that what the people, the crowds, were placing their hope in was ultimately sin leading to their destruction. And so they were not going to be enticed by their idolatry of them because they knew exactly where it was going to lead them. So they confronted them, risking their skyrocketing social statuses with a brave call to worship the living God and ultimately live rather than die. But verse 18 says, even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. Now let's look at our passage today, verse 19. The very next verse in the story reads like this. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium. And having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. Well, that escalated quickly. I mean, you have people, you have this crowd who think Paul and Barnabas are gods. And then you have some Jews come. I mean, they're, they're persuaded by that to the point of offering sacrifice to them, believing them to be God. And then you have some Jews show up, talk to them, and persuade them to, not no, longer, to, to no longer worship them, but rather kill them. Stone them to death. Having narrowly escaped being worshipped by the crowds, Paul immediately faces the newly persuaded crowd, which is a mob that responds very differently, violently, to his news about Jesus. At one moment, the crowd tries to worship him, and the next tries to murder him. One moment, he's exalted as a god, and the next, he's brutally beaten and gasping for life. One moment, he's a celebrity pastor, and the next, he's a notorious villain being executed in the street. He wasn't snubbed at the office or unfollowed on social media or ignored by friends and family. He's beaten with rocks and then left for dead. All for simply giving them good news. Good news about Jesus. Now, before I get into Paul and Barnabas' ministry through tribulation, I want to kind of first answer this question. What does this tell us about people? Like, what does this tell us about the human condition, the human state, the human state of understanding, the human state of being persuaded? I mean, you can literally convince me of anything. Literally anything. That's what we're seeing in this story right here. One day I'm believing Paul and Barnabas are gods, and then the next day I'm believing that they are evil heretics deserving of death by stoning, one of the most gruesome forms of execution during the Roman Empire. I mean, place yourself in the scene. You've got two men just trying to tell you some good news, and you get persuaded so much by these Jews that what they're saying is wrong, that it's no longer just, I'm going to unfollow you on Twitter, or I can't see you on Facebook anymore, like I'm just going to defriend you, or defollow you, or whatever that looks like. Like I'm just going to, you're just an, an intolerant bigot, and I just can't, I just can't. And so instead of kind of that idea of kind of what we see in our modern culture today, this is literally us looking around being like, man, what can I pick up and just start slinging at you? Because I'm so enraged by what you are saying that I'm willing to pick up rocks and just throw them at you until you die. This is stoning. This is 
the pendulum swing of these people who are so easily persuaded. But I think that tells us something about our human nature. Ephesians 4.14 says this, when Paul is trying to encourage and exhort the church in Ephesus, he says, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. He's on to something. He, he knows that we are so fragile that we can be tossed to and fro. We can bounce from one wind of doctrine to the next wind of doctrine. We can bounce because of human cunning, man. If, if someone's attractive, it's easier to listen to them. It's easier to believe what they say or how they say it. If they're a phenomenal communicator, then we're going to believe what they say. This is why they think Paul is, is Hermes, is because he was, Hermes was a herald, a messenger. He was someone who's going to be able to come in and persuade you in such a way that you believe whatever they're saying without ever fact-checking any of it this is the human condition craftiness and deceitful schemes true or false the eiffel tower is in france true or false true now we're all kind of diving into just general knowledge there but if i were to come to you and say the beehive is a building in new zealand true or false all right, so like unless you've been to New Zealand or you like are a, a whiz on New Zealand, like now you're kind of like, I'm not really sure, but I'm still going to make an educated guess. I'm still going to try to just, just come at it, and this is kind of what uh, Stephen Colbert calls truthiness, or it's truth from the gut, or truth from intuition. Like we just think it feels right to say true to a statement without actually knowing whether or not the statement is true. But we're willing to go ahead and make some conjecture there or a belief about it. When you answer it, you make a belief about it. For instance, in a classic study by Norbert Schwartz at the University of Michigan, people were more likely to think a statement was true when it was written in high color contrast. For example, blue words on white paper, black words on white paper versus yellow words on white paper. Literally, regardless of what was actually written, whether it was true or false, people are more inclined to, to believe high contrast is true because it's easier to read. Reading yellow on white paper is kind of like, man, are you hiding something? It's kind of hard to see. I just don't know that I can believe this. We can actually be manipulated by this idea. Same thing with, um, and this is kind of going back to, to my communication years in college, um, so I think this is the first time I'm actually using anything from my degree, um, but there's this idea of, of rhetoric and the art of manipulation. I took a class on the art of manipulation. I don't know why, I just sound intriguing. Um, I don't use that with you guys, <laughs> I promise, um, but there's this, there's this method called groupthink. And groupthink is literally trying to get a group of people to do something because the whole group agrees to do it regardless whether or not it's good or bad. And so they were like, we want you to go out and practice this. And so I was like, all right, I'm, I'm going to go get a group of people to do something that we shouldn't do. It was fun. 
And so I was like, I'm going to go to crosswalks because you tend to find people at crosswalks just waiting for, you know, the, the, the little white light of the person to light up so that you can start walking through. And then there's the red hand that you shouldn't walk. And so I walk up to this crosswalk and there's this red hand sitting there and I'm just, I just start walking. And as I start walking, there's two to three other people start walking. And then once those two to three other people start walking, guess what the whole group does? We're all breaking the law now. We're all walking across the street. That's what group think is, is no longer do we believe what's right or wrong. We just do what everyone else is doing. We're just willing to jump right into it. And I believe that's what we see in the human condition in this passage is you have this groupthink method happening where you've got Paul and Barnabas coming into this city performing incredible miracles and everyone is looking at this saying, wow, they must be Zeus and Hermes. But if you were to go and individually interview any one of them before Paul and Barnabas showed up and said, hey, do you think next week Zeus and Hermes is going to show up performing some incredible miracles for us? No. No, why would Zeus and... We're Lystra. Maybe Antioch, it's a bigger city. Maybe Ephesus, that's a bigger city. But we're Lystra, we're kind of the outskirts. Why would they come to us? But you get everybody surrounded around a theater or within a town square or, or kind of a... You get everybody together and you start pitching out some ideas that this is what's going on, this is what's happening, all of a sudden now people are bought into it. And then that's also exactly what the Jews come and do. The Jews come and they begin preaching this message, this idea that these men are heretics. That these men are preaching anti our traditions and our customs. That these men are not preaching the God of our Bible, the Old Testament. That this Jesus that they are preaching as the Messiah is not the one that we are waiting for. But rather, he is an invader, an imposter. And everybody believes it to the point of literally wanting to persecute these two men. If I were to tell you that I wrote gullible on the ceiling right now, you want to look. Some of you won't look because you're stubborn. And at the end of the day, you don't know whether I wrote gullible on the ceiling or not. But if we're willing to just own the fact that right now we're trying to tap into some type of gut or intuition without just simply fact-checking it, how easy is it for us to do the exact same thing when it comes to an article posted on Social media. How quick are we to believe a headline without reading the article? And then how quick are we to believe an article without actually fact-checking the story? How quick are we to believe a person who's providing for us some type of advice about life without ever actually fact-checking whatever that advice is? How easy is it for us to tap into gut or intuition rather than an absolute truth? If it's so easy for people to go from worshiping someone as a God to within the same week killing them, attempting to kill them, 
How easy is it for us to navigate throughout that entire pendulum swing on a daily basis? On a daily basis. Jen Wilkins says this. She's a theologian down in Texas. Bible literacy matters because it protects us from falling into error. Both the false teacher and the secular humanist rely on biblical ignorance for their messages to take root. And the modern church has proven fertile ground for those messages. Because we do not know our Bibles, we crumble at the most basic challenges to our worldview. I love that. What she's ultimately saying there is, is Bible literacy matters because the more we are informed in our mind about who God is and who God says we are, the more inclined we will be, un- be able to understand when someone provides for us, whether it's good advice or bad advice or a different worldview or a different perspective or a different opinion, we'll be able to filter that through the word of God of who he says he is and who he says we are. We'll be able to then kind of take that, whatever that word is that someone provides to us, and say, that's good or that's not good. That's not actually tying up within the way God says we should live our lives that are for his glory and for our joy. So although I appreciate your advice, I'm not going to take it. Because the word of God tells me this, and the word of God is going to lead me to joy and satisfaction. Bible literacy matters for us. Because it's the only thing that we have to hold on to grounded in truth that God is providing for us. I mean, at the end of the day, at the end of the day, when it comes to a worldview, and and what I mean by worldview is kind of how you process relationships, how you process how you're going to live your life, how you're going to invest, how how you're going to um, raise your kids, how you're going to educate. All of those things fall into kind of what our worldview is. Do you want a worldview based on God who created the world? Or do you want a worldview based on human ideology that this side of glory is always going to be mixed in with sin? I mean, there's a, I know where I land because I know myself. I know the things that I believe in the Bible that my feelings believe, else, believe otherwise. That there's times where I'm like, man, I really wish that, that this one thing could be true, but God says it's not. And I want to honor him because I ultimately know that in the grand scheme of things, this one thing that I feel might be right is going to lead to my destruction. It's not going to lead to satisfaction. It's not going to lead to joy. Because God knows. God's better. God's understanding is way above my understanding. I'm futile. I'm finite. God is not. Because we don't know what the Bible says about God's ways, we begin to fabricate our own about what God's ways are. 
And thus we, we create a false doctrine or belief about God. For example, I read an article this week that 50%, 50% of U.S. Christians, I don't know how big the, 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 uh, the pool was about how many people were, were interviewed on this, but 50% of U.S. Christians between the ages of 20 to 34 believe that evangelism is wrong. Think about that. U.S. Christians between the ages of 20 and 34 believe that evangelism is wrong. However, those same people also believe that Jesus is the greatest thing that has ever happened to them and also would be the greatest thing to happen to anyone. Those don't match up. If you believe that Jesus is the greatest person that has ever happened to you, and you also think that knowing him would be the greatest thing for everyone else, then you would tell people, which is what evangelism is. You would preach that good news. However, the reason why they believe evangelism is wrong is because of what our media in general is pushing about tolerance, about worldview, about what everyone should believe for themselves should be okay. That it would be wrong for you to preach your faith to someone of a different faith. And I've had multiple conversations. I've had multiple conversations with people of different faith, especially when I was in college. And they said, if you truly believe that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life, I would consider you a hypocrite if you did not try to evangelize me as a Hindu, as a Buddhist as a Muslim. I would not respect you as a Christian if you did not try to evangelize me. Because that's at the core of your belief is preaching the good news of Jesus Christ. Is saying that you believe that it is inclusive in the sense that it is only through Jesus that people get to God. That people get to heaven. That people have a relationship with Him. But because we're so easy to be manipulated in our belief system. We're so easy to be manipulated within our understanding of what's right and wrong. We've kind of come to this place that evangelism, even though there's, and I would probably say we all kind of feel somewhere on this spectrum, that evangelism is, is yes, a difficult thing, yes, an uncomfortable thing, but I wonder how much of that is because of what we believe in society regarding the issue rather than actually just knowing Jesus and wanting to ultimately find satisfaction in him and him alone that is included in us sharing the gospel with others. How many times does the Apostle Paul says to make my joy complete and that has nothing to do with his personal relationship with Jesus Christ, but has everything to do with him sharing his relationship of Jesus Christ with others. He wants others to come to know Jesus so that he receives more satisfaction, so that his life is actually being lived out to the fullest. 
So it's not about just him receiving Jesus and knowing Jesus, and therefore I have a personal relationship with Jesus, and therefore now that's all I have to focus on is just my personal quiet time, my personal prayer time, my personal Bible reading. If that were to never get beyond him and begin investing that into those around him with gospel conversations, Paul would be miserable in his relationship with Jesus. He'd be miserable because he would be sinning in his relationship with Jesus Christ if it does not get beyond him. If it does not push out. If it does not overflow. Guys, evangelism for us feels miserable because we're not engaged in it. Because we don't practice it. Because we don't, because we, we, we believe into the lie that for some reason we're going to hurt by evangelizing. That we're going to break relationships. That we're going to end friendships. That we're going to ultimately make people upset with us and angry at us. And the reality is, is yeah, that's true. That's true. I read a story, an article on the Gospel Coalition uh, two weeks ago where this guy was kind of given an allegory, just a story about his neighbor. His neighbor who was, who was not a Christian, who was um, a Muslim. And he said, I've always had this idea of evangelizing him. I've always had this idea of, of telling him about Jesus Christ, my relationship with, with Jesus he said, however, man, I just had such a good relationship with him, though. I had such a good friendship. Our, our kids played together. Our wives hung out all the time. Like, we would vacation together, but I just never felt like I could actually bridge that gap with a conversation. And then it said Jesus returns, and they go on to judgment, and they're standing there. And he said there were two words that haunted him. It was when he saw his friend before Jesus walking away as he was judged. For not knowing Christ. And the two words he looked at him, he said, You knew? You knew. And he didn't tell him. Like what we're looking at on a daily basis is a reality that is far greater than what we actually see on a daily basis. We're so caught up. I know this is kind of, this is heavy, but we're we're so caught up in how am I going to do my job right? How am I going to love my kids right? How am I going to be a good husband? How am I going to be a good pastor? How am I going to what am I going to eat for dinner tonight? Where are we going to go on vacation this summer? We're so caught up in, in the daily rhythms of life that we kind of forget about the reality of heaven and hell. We forget about the reality that Jesus Christ, God incarnate, came to earth to restore 
and reconcile broken relationships of people, of humans, who have been deceived, just like they were in this story, who have been deceived away from God. Jesus came in order to bring them back in a relationship with God. And the way that he has employed this entire ministry to function is off the heralding of the good news. Romans 10, how will they hear unless someone is sent to tell them? How will they believe unless they hear the gospel? God does not employ supernatural salvation. He employs it through the natural speaking and sharing of the gospel that then produces a supernatural miracle of salvation within the believers. We are viceroys. We are ambassadors. We are heralds of this good news. Your neighbor will not come to Christ if they do not hear you share Christ with them. My neighbors who are Jewish will not come to Christ unless we tell them about Jesus Christ. Our other neighbors who are Jehovah's Witness will not come to Christ unless we share with them Jesus Christ is the way. God has He's he's not only commanded us to do this. Make disciples of all nations is a command. But not only is it a command, but He empowers us to do this. And He actually is telling us that this will make your life better. That this will actually, it, it won't be something that is begrudging submission that, oh, I've got to evangelize, I've got to do this thing, or I'm not a good Christian, or I, I've got to do this thing, or God's going to be upset with me, or I've got to do. No, he's saying you participate in the ministry of reconciliation, the ministry of gospel sharing good news. When you participate in that, you actually have your joy complete. You're missing out because of lack of evangelism. You're missing out on the beautiful blessings that God has bestowed to us, that has provided for us, that are at our reach because we do not share the good news. And I'm not saying, I'm not, we're not preaching here that everyone should just become Billy Graham tomorrow and and like book Bankers Life Fieldhouse and try to invite as many people as possible and let's, let's just preach this huge message. One of our networks right now is, is doing a, I don't know, an initiative, I don't know what you want to call it, but, but they're essentially just calling it Hoosier One, not like Indiana Hoosiers. Who is your one? Who's your one? Who's your one? And what they're really just trying to train their people on is think about somebody right now in your life who does not know Christ. Start praying for them every single day. Start praying for them every single day. 
start strategizing how you're actually going to tell them about Jesus Christ. One of the easiest ways, hey, I would love to take you out for coffee sometime. I would love to tell you how Jesus has impacted my life. I know that might be an awkward conversation, but I would love to just sit down with you and just tell you what Christ has done in my life. And I want to see what you think about that. I want to see, maybe I want to hear some of your background story. I want to hear kind of how Jesus put it on the disciples when he says, like, who do they say that I am? Some say, you're Elijah. Some say you're John the Baptist. Some say you're, you're some weird things, but who do you say that I am? Just find out what, what do people think about Jesus? What you'll tend to find is actually people are not as anti-talking about Jesus as we think they are. But invite someone out for coffee and just say, I want to share my story of how I came to know Christ. And I want to get your thoughts on that. Can I then pray for you? When you ask someone if you can pray for them and they actually give you some reasons to pray, always provides a second time to be able to get together because you can always come back and say, hey, um, remember that time that I asked to pray for you and you said you were struggling in your marriage right now? How's that going? Can we get together and talk about that? And it provides another opportunity into an avenue in which, again, you can begin having gospel conversations. Hey, we've walked through that same thing in marriage. We've walked through that same thing in, in um, disobedient children. We've walked through that thing. Here's how Christ met us in that moment. And here's how he's provided hope for us. Here's how when I was chasing one dream, Jesus stepped in and became my dream, became my satisfaction, became my hope. Having those types of conversations is very important. And so, so I kind of want to do participate in that little who's your one. I want us to think about that. But I also don't want us to think that it's just going to be easy. Because this is a ministry through tribulation. They were preaching the gospel. And he even says, it will come through tribulations. You might lose friends. You might be considered a bigot. You might be cussed out. You might, whatever it looks like. But at the end of the day, some might come to know Jesus and have hope when they were hopeless and have help when they were helpless. My prayer for us is that every single person in this room this year would have one gospel conversation. One person that they're going to share Jesus with. And that through that, my prayer is that people come to know Christ. I mean, what are we doing as a church if that's not our goal? Don't get me wrong. I want to focus on making disciples and, and helping you love your spouse more and helping you love your kids more and, 
and being gospel-centered when it comes to, to those things. But at the end of the day, if we are not also working on how we are to grow in evangelizing, telling others about Jesus Christ, we are not a church. And we should take it off of our name if that were the case. The gospel must spread. Not only just because God tells us to, but because through that, God is providing for us more blessings and satisfaction and joy. And I want that for us. I want that for each and every one of us to experience more of God's goodness. I'm going to go ahead and have the band come on up here as we close out. As we come to closing out, I, I think about kind of how this story finishes where you have Paul beaten, stoned. They think he's dead, so they drag him outside of the city and they just leave him. The story goes on to talk about the fact that Paul then just rises up. I don't know, that might have been creepy when he gets there and he just rises up and goes on with the disciples. But they actually leave Lystra. They go away. But then it says that he comes back. He comes back to the people who try to kill him to continue preaching the gospel and strengthening the believers that are in that city. Don't give up. Even as you start having gospel conversations and they go awry, they go wrong, they, people cuss you out or whatever it might look like or say, I thought you were this and you ended up being one of those Christians. Don't give up. Continue to press on knowing that the Holy Spirit is the one strengthening you strengthening you and empowering you to be able to do what only he can do and that's bring salvation to people if you're if you struggle with well i just don't think that i'm equipped or qualified to be able to actually do this well, let's have a conversation about that let's get you some resources on what that looks like to be able to share your story to be able to share the gospel with others Let's be faithful, joyfully faithful to what God is doing. As we come to communion, communion is the means by which Jesus was willing to go in order to evangelize us. Like you, we, we, we're just talking lip service. We're just talking, just sharing, just telling someone of what Jesus who he is, what he's about. But in communion, this is Jesus showing us what he was willing to do to evangelize, to bring good news to us, was to literally become the message. The message that we are sinners and deserving of death. That because we've rebelled against God, our, that's our punishment. And Jesus is coming saying, I, I've got good news for you. The good news is that I'm going to take your death penalty. 
and I'm going to place it on myself on the cross, and I'm going to break my body, and I'm going to shed my blood so that the wrath of God would be satisfied, so that God would no longer look at you as though you were deserving of death. But because it was placed on Jesus, and then Jesus raises three days later, being brought to life, he then is guaranteeing for us that when we are buried with Christ in his death, we are also raised to this new life that Jesus now is living. Jesus performed all that is necessary for someone to become a Christian, a follower of him, to be able to be adopted into the family of God, to be loved by God, to be forgiven by God, to have your conscience wiped clean past, present, and future. To never feel like I have to owe anything anymore, but rather I get to freely live in this life. This life now and this life for eternal. Jesus accomplished all of that. And so communion is an act of worship of us believing what he did on the cross was to ultimately bring glory to God by performing the means of salvation for us. And so let this be a foundation of gratitude and thankfulness for what Jesus was willing to do for us that then translates in us taking that gratification, that gratitude, and then letting it pour over into that one person that you're praying for. That one person that you want to come to know Jesus Christ. And you might be the herald, the messenger who's going to tell them. So let's worship Jesus. And as you come back to your seats in partaking of communion, let's pray for that person that you have on your mind. Begin praying for them. And then over the coming weeks, let's begin strategizing what it looks like to share the gospel with them. Father, we thank you for this time. As we partake of communion, Lord, we thank you for breaking your body and shedding your blood. Providing for us the removal and forgiveness of our sins. Taking our sinful identity and giving us a righteous identity. Thank you, Jesus. We worship you. We honor you. We glorify you. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to a sermon from the District Church. For more information about us, please visit www.thedistrict.church. Additionally, if any of our sermons have brought encouragement to you, would you please let us know by emailing us at info at thedistrict.church.